Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, COVID-19 is still with us. It is. I'm, I'm hoping we might be able to conclude it by season three, maybe. <laughs> well, see, however, I was popped in to get a coffee before we came here at a place nearby where there's a supermarket and a bloke walked in, not checking in, nothing, just completely. Mm. And I, this is how I've changed. <laughs> I well, stared at it. Well, you, I remember you asking me in sort of season one, so see, you know, episode two, season one, we said, will we ever be the same? And it's just like, we have very short memories. Right at the moment, it feels like it's all-encompassing, because it is. Mm. But we, we will go back to our old ways very quickly when things yeah. settle down. Uh, and, and this is, you know, the name of this episode is COVIDity. This is actually mixing two terms. So COVID and avidity. Uh, and avidity is a test we use to test the strength of an antibody and an antigen reaction. Uh, and look, I thought it was fitting because COVID has tested the strength of nations mm. uh it's you know around the world you can actually look at and just by sheer numbers you get a feel of how do they manage mm. uh and some are encouraging and some are honestly devastating well i was expecting the other word was going to be morbidity yep yeah, yeah. And, and look it is uh you know it, it's just uh yeah. how do you describe being in the middle of a pandemic uh i think we've been very fortunate here in australia uh you know politically we've had pretty much most of our politicians on the same page there was a discussion about it you know being a suppression uh, approach as opposed to an elimination pr- pr- approach it's pretty much gone to an elimination approach uh and and to be honest I think that's fantastic. Mm. Uh, I think the governments deserve, uh, Australian governments, state and federal, should be congratulated for that. Yep. Been a hard slog, and it's the sort of thing where politicians have had to step up yep. and be real again and, and actually do real politics as opposed to, I feel we got to a point where there was just the usual cut and thrust yep. on the sideshow of politics. Yep. But real decisions had to be made that were effect- affecting people immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you've, there, there's been a few grumbles along the way uh, and each state has managed their own. But yeah. to be honest, when we look at the world, uh, you know, these, these numbers are from, you know, yesterday. So, you know, the, when we record this on the 28th, so this is from the 27th of, of January 2021. Uh, unfortunately, the number of worldwide inflection, infections have just clicked over greater than 100 million. And we've got around 2.16 million deaths. Now, mortality is just such a crude measure. And this is because it doesn't take into consideration morbidity and the the impact that it has at a societal level. But, uh, you know, things like a patient who gets unwell, has to go to hospital, goes to ICU, but fortunately recovers, is not covered in mortality. Uh, You know, that's a significant... Uh, burden on the patient, their family, you know, a hospital bed, an ICU bed, it's not measured in there. So, so it's a rather crude measure, but it still is a measure. And it tells you that if a large mortality rate, generally, you can assume that there's been a significant morbidity rate, a larger one, a cost of that to that society 
for those people who have died. So it, it mm. gives us an indication of the severity. If we accept the limitations of mortality, let's look at the, the highest deaths per million. And so this gives us a comparable ratio uh, between countries. And so, unfortunately, the, the worst at the moment is Belgium. Uh, that has a death rate of 1,800 deaths per million. So their population size is 11 million people. Now, one of the useful measures here is in the last seven days, how many deaths have they had per million? And this is at 27. So that's low comparatively to what I'll discuss now. But mm -hmm. we have Slovenia at number two with a death rate of 1,600 per million. Uh, they have a population of 2 million people, but their last seven days is 74 per million. So still in the middle range, to be honest. The surprising ones, honestly, is the UK. Uh, it has a death rate of 1,460 per million with a population of 67 million. But their death rate in the last seven days is 120 per million. So that's when we're using the seven-day ratio that's only second to Portugal, which is a seven-day death rate of 140 people per million. So you can see, even though we haven't mentioned Portugal, Portugal's last week has been bad. Mm. The United States has uh, 1,270 per million. So they have a population of 328 million. And their seven-day death rate is 61 per million. So again... To put that in context, you almost have to look at the lowest death rates per million. So these are countries like Burundi, Vietnam, Thailand, all of which have death rates per million overall between 0 0.1 oh, and 1 per million. So they haven't had, essentially, these next countries that I mentioned will have had zero deaths in the past seven days per million. That includes China who has a population of 1.4 billion. Mm -hmm. So China has a death rate of 3.4 per million overall. So they've gotten on top of it, but we have seen some of the tactics they've used to do that. Uh, I don't know if any democratic societies are able to yes. uh, do those techniques. But then we look at places like Singapore, uh, which have a death rate of 5 per million and a population of 5.7 million. You know, New Zealand, 5 per million as well, you know, around a population of 5 million. Australia sits in at 35 deaths per million, and we have a population of 25 million. So Australia's doing really well. I think we're doing a fantastic job. But there's other countries who have just stomped on it straight away and haven't pretty much almost had hardly any deaths mm. per their population. So... You can see the governments have had a huge role in their impact. And unfortunately, it looks like the country that's doing the worst or looks like they're heading for the worst is the UK at the moment. So then that tells us what evidence do we have of how to be able to stop COVID. And so that brings us back to the infectivity rate. So R value, mm -hmm. uh, which you'll, you'll remember, the reproductive rate. And so, again, I will. everything has a caveat. Everything has a, you know, there's limitations to, to limiting a pandemic to a figure, but there are some useful things you can draw out. Now, the, the rate uh, is 
when we look at it, we know the rate of COVID itself has a reproductive rate between two and three. So running by itself, one infection will affect two or three people and infect those two or three. So just naturally, you'll see an exponential rise in COVID if it's left to its own devices, which will go from one, two, four, eight. Beyond. yeah, Yeah. And so if you get your reproductive rate below one, the epidemic or pandemic will reduce. If it's at one, it will stay the same. If it's above one, it will increase. If it's between one and two, it will steadily increase. If it's above two to three, you're in epidemic pandemic region. So what have we found have had the biggest impacts Mm -hmm. on the R value? So we know there's been four main events that have actually slowed and reduced the R value. School closures and work closures, Mm -hmm. a ban on public events, Mm -hmm. stay-at-home orders, and restrictions on internal movements. So individually, these can stop, reduce the R value by between 3 to 25%. Wow, okay. When we look at it from effectively trying to reduce it, if we employ school and work closures, stay-at-home orders, a ban on public events, gatherings of less than or equal to 10 people and restricted movements, you can reduce the R by 52%. So the problem with that, when we look at it, is you say if you have an R value of 2 or 2.5, dropping it by you know, 50% will take you down. To 1, 1.25. Yeah, so yeah. you need it long. So what they've found, but that has to be implemented, and that happens after 28 days so those have to be in for about a month mm-hmm. for it to have a significant effect on the r value the problem is if your r value is three it needs to be longer to of get course. that yep. get that implementation now that's not taking into account contact tracing and isolation um and also sometimes a lot of governments would say we're going to have restrictions in a week and so then people would actually have what we would call super spreader events effectively leading up to it which would increase the r value to then try and reduce it and come back to it which was counterintuitive but that's what it is especially the the crowding in shops as people started panic buying before the hard <laughs> lockdown uh it was a classic case in point so you you're seeing what's happening you this is the information we know now so what is the transmission? Well, we know it's respiratory droplets. And the most people who are at risk is if you're face-to-face with a person who is infected for 15 minutes within two metres. So these are the people who are at most at risk of transmitting the infection. Singing and shouting increases the range at which droplets spreads through. So concerts, shouting, church services, everything goes through. Mm-hmm increases the amount that it will spread. And er it can aerosol in crowds and poorly ventilated areas, spreading it even further. So who's then most at risk for people when get outside of, you know, super spreader events and large gatherings? It's within households, spouses sleeping in the same room, you know, friends and family gatherings because it's close contact. And so we know that household contacts have about a 4 to 35% chance of getting the infection just by being about. Mm-hmm. And so high-risk activities, 
dining in close proximity with people, mm-hmm. sharing food, and group activities. But there's other sources of transmission. You can get it in your eye from the conjunctiva, so if someone, you don't just have to breathe, but you can also ingest it, again, sharing food. And there's also now something that seems to be coming out a little bit more, is fecal shedding. So we can do, again, this is how we can test in a population, you can test the sewerage and see is COVID in the sewerage to say, yes, it is, because people shed more through fecal than respiratory. Uh, so now we haven't been able to isolate it and grow it. So we don't know if it's infective. Yep. That was yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it will certainly make our drive throughs a bit different if we start doing swabs like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> but Well, you'd have to get out of the car. Well, no, no, no. Just like okay. a window. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to make it. That won't get past Charlie. Um, but we also know that the virus can survive many days on stainless steel, plastic, and glass. Uh, It prefers low temperatures and humid environments, things like air-conditioned environments, but it is easily killed or inactivated through household cleaners, surface cleaning, UV, and hand washing. We know a lot about it. We know a lot how to stop it. We know how uh, it spreads. And so, you know, what are the symptoms of people? Well, they, they get fevers, they get myalgias, headache, respiratory symptoms. And it, from animal models, we, we hear a lot about the you know, loss of smell. Well, it seems that COVID uh, has an effect on the olfactory epithelium, so of the nose, as well as the sustentacular cells that support the neurons. And it seems that they have, something that will make sense later, ACE receptors, ACE2 receptors, that appear to get damaged in some people and take a long time to recover. Right. And so that's why they have an inability to, to smell, is that their neural centres that smell get damaged. And so, again, as I said, the pathogenesis is that the ACE2 receptors on the cells is in respiratory epithelium, so in the lungs. We have it in the intestines. We have it in uh, endothelial cells in the kidney and in blood vessels. So these gives us an idea of where the virus can attach. Who's at risk? Elderly people, people who have cancer, chronic kidney disease, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so emphysema, people who have long-term heart conditions such as congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease or cardiomyopathies, people with type 2 diabetes, obesity, people with sickle cell disease, smokers, and pregnancy. The protection of the society protects all these people. So again, death rates, morbidity, mortality reduce. Uh, I think the approach has been the right one for for effectively elimination in that. This brings us to well, what has worked at an individual level. So we, we know what happens in a societal level, what needs to face masks so now it's unusual because the population now knows about face masks that are the n95 which doctors you know usually would have known about that microbiologists would have uh you know now why is it called n95 because it filters 95 percent of airborne particles that are 0.3 micrometers and larger now the interesting thing is that covid is approximately or around 0.1 micromillimeter 
so it could get through it, yeah. but it has to try. It has to travel on droplets. So and droplets can be zero point two uh, micromillimeters. So it still has to get through. So it's not perfect, but it does reduce. The interesting thing is we don't have a great lot of evidence about how useful they are because it's it's hard to measure mm. we have good indications that it's useful uh, but the studies just aren't there to, to compare even in in this age and so we know that it reduces the risk of transmission but it doesn't stop it so even if you've gone about it's it's all these other measures if you're not doing all these other measures yes. you will reduce it but it won't stop Hence, your collectors uh, have the masks, uh, the, the big shields on top of the masks as extra barriers. We have eye protection, you have masks, yeah. you have gowns, yeah. you have gloves. You're protecting yourself as much as you can as a healthcare worker. Uh, you know, the, the surgical and cloth masks that people wear, there was an observational study that found it has about a 70% effective at protecting the wearer. So, uh, and again, if we have dual layer sort mm. of cloth masks, they are actually better than the single cloth, as you would expect. Yep. Uh, eye protection reduces transmission by about 75%. And so then we're looking at uh, social distancing. How effective is that? Because some countries said one meter was enough. Some, me some said two meters was better. Mm. Uh, but again, this was historical. We didn't have data on that yeah. it, it was it was that you should stay away uh but we did find out there was a systematic review that that found that uh people in a healthcare environment had a 82 percent re reduction in transmission when they were one meter apart right. so and they found that the further you distance the the less risk you have of transmission so but again this didn't take into account airflow, air conditioning, recycled air and filtered air. So, again, you start going into one of those areas that it, the evidence, you can ask a lot of questions, but we don't have data to back it up, but the, we can draw conclusions. It'd be interesting to see how many cyclists have picked it up from motorists who are meant to stay <laughs> a metre away. You never know. Yeah, as I say, it's just one of the, if everyone's seen on, online those things of the sneeze where it goes yes, everywhere exactly. and, you know. Uh, and the last, the last one is hand washing. Now we have known for centuries that this is this has worked. In fact, you know, Igneus Semmelweis is a, is a you know 19th century Hungarian doctor. Uh, he he was the first to recognise. He was on a he was in a hospital which had a physician based maternity ward and a, and and another place which had a midwife run maternity ward. And he compared the two, and the doctors had a mortality rate of the women between thirteen and 18%, whereas the midwives had a mortality rate of 2%. And he looked at it and he said, well, how is there such a disparity? What he ended up finding is that the doctors would do autopsies and dissect cadavers, go straight from there without washing their hands to deliver a baby. And they got this mysterious illness that was called uh, childbed fever and had a you know almost a one in, one in five mortality rate. And he said, you're not cleaning your hands. Now, he was ridiculed at the time, uh, but eventually shown to be right that hand washing is essential in reducing transmission of illness and bacteria. And so this brings us to the last point I want to raise here, uh, which was the, the Sweden experiment. So we had worldwide approach to it. Um, everyone was locking down, but Sweden said, no, 
we're actually going to go to a, a different approach. We're not going to have restrictions. And so they didn't mandate public health measures, and, you know, public transport or shopping malls or other crowds. They had a recommendation of less than 50 people per gathering. Uh, and initially they had seeming, seemingly encouraging results. In, in April, they had a peak death rate of a, a, or deaths of 102. Um, they dropped to a low in September of 2020. And they even lowered the restrictions there more in October. But then in December of 2020, they had uh, seven, around 780 deaths per million, which was about four to ten times their neighbours. Uh, and so they believed that this was due to their lack of restrictions and they've brought in restrictions now uh, as a measure. So they've sort of moved away from that herd immunity, let it do its course, uh, and that brings us to sort of the, the global view of where we are with COVID in the start of January 2021. All right. Before we bring Dr. Damon uh, to the podcast, I'm going to go and wash my hands. You, you do it too. So, Travis, we've, we've got the, that background with COVID-19. What do we actually know about the virus? So, the virus, what we know, it's an envelope virus. It has uh, spikes, which people will talk about. Again, that's important for vaccinations. Uh, it's got a membrane protein. We know the, the genetic sequence. Uh, it is, you know, this corona or the COVID virus is 96% similar to a bat coronavirus named RATG13. Uh, there was the SARS outbreak in 2003. Uh, this is 80% genetic similar to that SARS virus. You know, uh, you know, a question is why did that one not become a pandemic and, and why did COVID? Uh, it turns out it's most likely what we can think is the peak infectivity period of COVID-19 tends to be when you're becoming symptomatic or pre-symptomatic mm-hmm. um, and one week into your infection is the peak time that you can transmit the virus for SARS in 2003 the peak infectivity period tended to be week two of your infection so you're already symptomatic at that point in time and not passing it on so uh, you know at this point in time there's around uh, four variants. So you've got the original. There's a UK variant named B117. There's a South African variant named B1351 uh, and Brazil variant named P1. There's a Denmark variant. And I tell you, right, you know, in the next few weeks, there's going to be a few more variants just because sure. of the sheer volume of numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the relevance for us in pathology, why is this important? Well, we need to sequence it to know what it's linked to. Uh, where it's come from, but we also need it for the PCR test for our targeting. So if it changes its sequence so much, our target might change, and we might say, oh, it's not there when it is there, but we don't have the right target. So it's something we're monitoring uh, as a pathology organisation. We're looking at it, how long does someone shed for? So shed meaning you've still got viral particles, but you may or may not be infective. Uh, So people tend to shed the virus for 17 days, but we know that they can shed it up to 83 days as the longest recorded. Uh, But from studies, it seems to be that after about day nine, 
you tend not to be as infective. So it drops down. So this is why people talk about that two-week period uh, of isolation is because sometimes you might be pre-symptomatic, so you not have it, and then you have those nine days. So 14 days of isolation, you tend, you can be still shedding the virus after that, but it's not infective or virus particles, should I say. Hmm. So what does that mean? Well, Initially, the data we thought that was really high with the asymptomatic rate. It was, you know, anywhere between 40 to 80 percent. It's somewhere what we believe now is probably about 20 percent. So one in five people may be true asymptomatic. And what that means is that people who are shedding the virus and sending are pre-symptomatic. So they'll get symptoms. They're not truly asymptomatic for the disease, but they're being tested and positive before they're showing symptoms. Sure. So yeah, the, the severity with regards to, you know, when someone comes into a hospital, we know if they've got a high fever at presentation, if they're having difficulty breathing, or, you know, even if, you know, general signs like a low, low systolic pressure, less than 100, or high respiratory rate greater than 20, or, you know, even an altered Glasgow coma score, uh, so their, you know, consciousness is altered. Um, these are bad signs for a patient to be coming in. If they've got lab tests like, uh, you know, a neutrophilia or a lymphopenia, um, a raised lactate or LDH or, you know, raised CRP, ferritin, you know, ACE2 or a D-dimer, these are all signs, but they're not specific for COVID, just general uh, over sort of tests that mm. we do to, to see how they're going. So, you know, those are general markers. Uh what we do know, though, from autopsies, there was a, there's a recent article that's come out uh, from the Archives of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. Uh, they did 135 autopsies on COVID patients, uh, you know, 19 centres across the US and Brazil. Uh, and what they found is that most of them had uh, more than one pre-existing condition. Uh, you know, so we're talking diabetes, you know, 52% had diabetes, 34% were obese, uh, you know, 64% had hypertension. The interesting thing is 7% of people didn't have any comorbidities. So there's a segment of people who are seemingly well yeah. um, that still can have a fatal outcome because of a COVID infection. Uh, the findings from the autopsy are, again, as you would expect, mainly lung damage. Uh, so uh, a condition that's a pathological condition called diffuse alveolar damage, you know, 75% had an acute um, histology of that and 47% had organizing DAD, uh, you know, 40% had acute bronchopneumonia. And then we've also got some uh, thrombi. So, you know, clots either macroscopically about 20% or 50% had microscopic in the lungs and uh Interestingly, you know, 77% had what we say uh, the myocytes, so uh, cardiac cells were increased in size, but only 6% showed myocarditis, so inflammation of the heart. So that was thought to be something earlier. But uh, when we look at the post-infection complications, there's something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome that can happen in adults and children. Uh, again, 
this tends to be, uh, you know, rare complications for adults. It's a few weeks. Mm. It depends on where the virus has been uh, and where it's sort of showing that inflammatory disease. And people get worried about children, but it's actually really rare in children. Uh, and they're talking about months later. But again, that's, that's being drawn out um, in the studies. And the only other thing, which is the main complaint of people, is uh, long-term loss of uh, smell. Uh, and taste. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out about 80% of COVID infections have some sort of disturbance of smell. Uh, and that's because the olfactory, so the nasal lining, the epithelium, uh, it tends to be, appears to be damaged, the cilia gets lost, and some of the supporting cells of the, the neurons uh, have ACE2 receptors, sustentacular cells, and this seems to interfere with that. So People say smell if uh, does return after about six to twelve months, mm. uh, but that's a known problem uh, that comes through. And aside from that, that's what we know about COVID, the virus itself, and symptoms. So our guest is ready. So let's come back in just a moment and continue the program. <laughs> Joining us now, we have Dr. Damon Langus, clinical immunologist with Sullivan Nicolaides Pathology. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks, Damon. Look, I, I was wanting to, to ask you, there's a, there was a significant proportion of discussion last year about the development of COVID vaccines effectively as a magic bullet for the, for the pandemic. Uh, we've got uh, a number that have come out, uh, certainly Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca, Moderna. Can you tell us the difference or similarities between the different vaccines that have been developed from what we know now uh, as they're being released? This last year for science and medicine really represents a triumph of the marriage of uh, true science with the commercialisation and then delivery of a vaccine to a virus that we've never seen before. Uh, and has managed to produce a vaccine to a virus type, which we haven't been terribly interested most of the time, except for these extreme outbreaks, particularly the last SARS and now this one. Um, in fact, not only are the vaccines we you will have heard of, there are actually 173 vaccines in clinical trials, oh. uh, in preclinical development, sorry, and 64 in clinical trials. And there are 15 in phase three development. So there are multiple Chinese uh, um, vaccines and there are Russian vaccines. Um, most of those won't be seen in the West, um, but they really are an incredible array. And they kind of split into four groups. Um, the ones that have garnered the most interest, I think, are the mRNA vaccines because mm -hmm. never before have we ever had a clinical vaccine which was an mRNA vaccine. So this really is taking the mRNA sequence, um, after all, coronavirus is an RNA virus, uh, and it um, is taking that, uh, inserting it inside a liposome. Um, I saw a great analogy somewhere online which likened mRNA vaccines to an M&M. &M. Um, the mRNA, which is easily degradable, is the chocolate gooey centre, uh, and the liposome is that crisp shell. I think I'm using the correct M&M uh, &M terminology. Uh, and that really allows us to deliver this very fragile and easily degradable substance inside into the human body so we can process it. 
And that is a reason why the temperatures, specifically with the Pfizer vaccine, have to be so cold. So minus 70 is a classic temperature at which uh, we keep mRNA. Um, now, the uh, Moderna vaccine, which is the same technology, only needs minus 20. Now, we don't know why there is a difference. Um, Moderna is a private company. Um, it's proprietary knowledge about their liposomal construct. We do know that it contains polyethylene glycol, um, which has been rumoured but probably isn't the cause of any allergic reactions. Um, so those, those those two vaccines, and they are the um, two mRNA vaccines that we have. And obviously in Australia, we'll only have the Pfizer vaccine available. Um, then there are sort of a traditional vaccine. That's where we take, in this case, a piece of the virus, so the spike protein in this case, and we stick it in a vaccine. And that might be with an adjuvant, something that promotes allergenicity, uh, immunogenicity. Um, we actually don't know how most adjuvants work. Um, aluminium's been used for 50 years, and we still don't know the exact mechanism by which it acts as an adjuvant, <laughs> but it's very effective. Uh, so the Novavax, which Australia does have capacity to make, um, is a protein subute vaccine. Uh, and I think the Australian government's ordered on something on the order of greater than 50 million doses. Um, and it's a two-dose vaccine. So that's, um, on my reckoning, enough to vaccinate the whole of Australia completely mm -hmm. just with that vaccine alone. Um, and then there are the viral vector vaccines. So that's where another virus like adenovirus, which is not live, um, has bits of uh, the coding sequence of DNA of this virus, i.e. covid inserted into it uh, and we use the fact that this construct is stronger and that's what the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen as its drug arm is known vaccine contains. Um, the interesting thing is while the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, is two doses it appears in data that's either going to be released or has just been released that the Janssen vaccine is incredibly immunogenic I, most people will make antibodies against it to something like 98% after a single dose. Mm. Now, for healthcare delivery, mm. a single dose is so much more immensely attractive. Um, the amount of resources that need to go into getting people to come back for a second dose. Um, everyone has uh, chaotic lives. Some people way more chaotic than others. Uh, we have the tyranny of distance in Australia. Um, many people live a long way, especially in regional and remote communities, Aboriginal communities. Um, getting vaccines out to them or getting people to come in for vaccination once as possible, twice is way more difficult. Mm. Uh, and so if we're looking at blanket coverage to risk groups, it would be lovely to have a one-off vaccine. I'm not sure we're going to get that in Australia, though. Um, and then the fourth type of vaccine is an inactivated virus. Now, none of the vaccines produced by the large Western companies are using this route. Um, this has largely been used by Chinese companies. Um, I think the days of using an activated virus, it's a harder selling point. Um, like measles, there is a very, very, very small chance that you actually get active infection. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that chance is very small, um, but it's if you're going to combat uh, vaccine hesitancy, then I think you need to especially when you have the technology to be able to use the safest thing possible. So those really are the four types of virus, uh, four types of vaccine um, that we have available in the whole world. 
And as yet in Australia, we have two coming, which are the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, which is two doses, uh, and the AstraZeneca or Oxford vaccine, which is also two doses, which is, of course, a viral vector vaccine. You just used the word safety before, and I know there was a trial that was ceased in Queensland. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So there was actually no no problem with safety. Um, In part of this so-called molecular clamp technology, it's basically inventing a protein construct as if like a clamp that you hold a bench um, to a tool or to a bit of wood. Um, It's a ability to stick various proteins or viruses and attach it on, like clamping it to it. And this technology was hoped to be a way to quickly produce new vaccines to various things. Unfortunately, um, the protein, well, not unfortunately, but the protein used was a HIV protein. So not HIV, but a protein which originated in HIV. So a single protein called P24. Now, we use that in diagnosis. Uh, and that antibodies to P24 are used in the early diagnosis of HIV. They aren't the diagnosis, but they're part of it. Uh, And so in uh, pre-human models, I think monkey models, there was no evidence that P24 antibodies were made. Uh, And so the study went forward. And unfortunately, um, a small minority of people who received that vaccine made antibodies towards P24. And this isn't dangerous, Mm. uh, but unfortunately, if they had an HIV test, it would make them look like they were positive or early positive to HIV. And obviously, that's not actually a danger to those patients. Nothing's happened to them. But for a long time, it would be very difficult to diagnose HIV in those people. A lot with the vaccine, they're talking about two different terms, which are very similar. So efficacy and effectiveness. Uh, can you provide some clarity as to, you know, the difference and what, what impact that has? Sure. I mean, the two terms are actually completely the same. Yeah. They just apply in different circumstances. Right. Um, so efficacy is really in a controlled trial. Right. Um, so what you're looking at is the number of people who either make a antibody response, and that's usually predetermined. So you've decided what an effective antibody response is going to be uh, and or Uh, lack of severe disease. So in all of the trials, the number of patients who ended up in hospital because of COVID, uh, when they had been vaccinated with almost any of the vaccinations, was either zero or incredibly low. So when we're talking about differences in uh, vaccine strength or antibody teeter or the number of people who make a predetermined response, sometimes that doesn't really translate into real world outcomes. Sometimes it's worse, but in this case, it appears to be a great deal better. Uh, And even when we're talking about how many people make antibodies, when we say compare that to the seasonal flu vax, if we got 74% coverage for the seasonal flu vax, that's an amazing year, an amazing year. Often, unfortunately, because of the way that virus recombinates, we've been sitting down at like 23%. Um, The worst vaccine, and I say that meaning in the efficacy, not in the actual outcome, Mm -hmm. in other words, it's still a very good vaccine, is still better than the best year, is still better than the worst, the best year in flu. So in other words, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, they're talking about 75% effectiveness. Um, So that's still better than the flu vax has ever been. 
we're actually dealing with vaccines that are all incredibly efficacious. Mm. Now, when we talk about effectiveness, that's when we translate that into real life. So what actually happens when we take people who are not in a trial basis, these are people who are relatively well, they're, they're mobile, they're able to get to trial centres, um, they have good use usually of the English language, um, they are generally not marginalised, they're not isolated. So we, when we move into the real world, we want to see that when we translate that clinical data, trial data, to the real world, that we see a similar fall in the number of patients uh, with COVID who are hospitalised. And obviously in Australia, that's impossible. We're not going to see any difference because even at our worst, we still didn't have anything near uh, even half or a third of several places in the world. So really um, what you'd be looking at is in particularly in the UK, where there's relatively good data that uh, when the vaccine is rolled out, you start to see areas where uh, or populations who severe COVID does not occur again. Talking of real world, in the real world, uh, many GPs listening to this are going to have patients ask them, what are the side effects if I get this uh, vaccine? They may not use the term contraindication, but they'll be asking about side effects. What, how would you be responding to that and putting that into some sort of context? Yeah, I think we have to be pretty honest. It's, it's from the studies, it's pretty obvious that these vaccines are very immunogenic. And I, when I'm talking to my patients, always sell that as saying, your body is making a great immune response. And the how it does that is it generates a response similar to when you have an actual infection. So that's how vaccines work. They're tricking your body into thinking they have an infection. They aren't infected. They just have a small part usually, or the in this case, the uh, RNA of the virus. We then... Uh, go through the stages of uh, viral infection of a cell, even though it's not a whole virus. And then our immune responses respond to that. If we didn't actually have that kind of process, we wouldn't make these antibodies. Um, it's pretty clear from the Pfizer trial that 25% of people get a fever with the second dose. Um, so that's much higher than most of the other vaccines we're used to having. Mm. I think we have to be realistic when people are having their second dose uh, they have to be warned that they may not be able to attend work the next day, uh, that they might feel very unwell, um, that they, if they have multiple comorbidities, um, that they may need to make sure that they have ability to contact either healthcare workers or friends or relatives, um, not necessarily because they're likely to suffer severe consequences, just so they can be prepared. And in case you know they were so unwell they couldn't get out of bed, uh, they can be helped through that. Um, it really doesn't appear to last longer than one to two days in most people. Mm -hmm. um, and there are slightly lower rates with the AstraZeneca, with significantly lower rates of fever and muscle pain myalgias. Um, but the mRNA vaccines, probably because they are very immunogenic, they are probably mimicking a real infection more than the other types of vaccine. Um, and the other thing about them is that they generate a true polyclonal response. Um, so viruses aren't very good at um, producing themselves faithfully. They're very good at reproducing themselves, but they don't really care if they make mistakes. A bit different from a human cell. Uh, we really care if we make mistakes because the, the outcome can be horrendous, either autoimmune disease or cancer or organ dysfunction. Um, viruses just keep going. Uh, and so that means when we're using our cells to help them replicate a small bit of the virus, we actually get lots of types of virus. 
And so we make a very, very widespread response. And uh, I've always said to people, you know, this is your immune system making a fantastic response. It's a small price to pay to know that you're completely covered against this virus. Are there any patients uh, that can't receive the vaccine, any contraindications, people who, who uh, should be warned away from it? There probably are a few. Um, in my line of work, um, people who do not have a single B cell, uh, and there are a few of those, um, and there are some people on drugs. Now, it's not actually going to be harmful for them. They just won't make any response because they lack the cells to make antibodies. Um, in other people, um, perhaps, um, and we don't know, that if you are allergic to polyethylene glycol. Now, these people exist. It is a rare allergy. They usually have multi-drug allergy because polyethylene glycol, otherwise known in medications as macrogol, uh, is often in many medications, and they often have multi-drug allergy. But this is very, very rare. We're talking maybe there's 30 people in Australia with that. Um, um, it's a guess, that number, but it is mm. very rare. I think I've seen one patient in 20 years. Um, but it's not something, it's only something we've kind of known about for the last 10 years. Um, you will have seen that initial report with the vaccine rollout in the UK where a couple of healthcare workers had anaphylaxis. And there was a lot of work done looking at could this be peg allergy, um, not the stuff you hang up washing with, um, but macrogol allergy, and it, it isn't. And in fact, subsequent analysis has shown that people with a history of allergies are no more likely to react to this vaccine than anybody else. So it really is a random event. And yeah. having looked at vaccine anaphylaxis before, you're usually dealing with one in 100,000, something like that, uh, and often, we never find the cause. Um, so the cause may actually be that single person's immune system just doesn't like that mode of exposure to antigen. Uh, that's a bit of an immunologic cop-out. It just means we really don't know. Okay, so there's a there's a bit of evidence coming out, uh, new strains, um, new COVID variants. Uh, and this has been topical because, you know, as the vaccine's rolling out, everyone's like, well, will it even cover this new variant coming out? Uh, can you give us a, a little bit more light on, on this? Is it, is it a, a large concern? Is it a small concern? Is it a, a, you know, something that we need to always keep an eye on? I think it's a small potential concern that we definitely need to keep an eye on. Um, most of the time, viruses don't become uh, more pathogenic over time, but this virus has already shown that's not true. Um, so COVID-19, the British variant, uh, appears that the new variant uh, spreads a little bit more, not, nothing like the media has kind of implied, um, but it spreads more, but it actually ends, you have a third greater chance of ending up in hospital. So that's kind of unusual. Most viruses decrease their pathogenicity over time. But the fact is we've really only had this virus for a year, so uh, you know it, it kind of might behave slightly differently. The vaccines so far still have significant efficacy against them. And there's no reason to think that on a population basis, our vaccination programs would be affected by the present mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we look at effectiveness, they make less or you make a lesser degree of antibody response, but it is still enough to give you an immune response. Right. So that when that's put into the real world, it's highly likely that it won't make much difference at all. But given that these variants have arisen, it's going to be something that the whole world has to keep on top of. Mm -hmm. um, the best thing is that uh, the two mRNA vaccines have the ability to edit 
the mRNA sequence relatively easily. After all, Moderna uh, had their sequence ready to go within a month of receiving the original sequence. So it didn't take them long. So it's kind of like a drop-in cricket pitch. Yes. Uh, so when you do your next match, you can actually just edit your mRNA. And because their to technology is so good, um, by the way, I don't own shares in Moderna, uh, <laughs> that their technology seems so fantastic, they can drop the next sequence in and then create a second COVID-19 vaccine. So now, obviously, that would take a long time to roll out again, mm -hmm. but it's a lot quicker than any technology we've ever had before. So it's certainly something we're going to need to keep an eye on. So do you think this is almost going down the flu line of each year we'll have to keep an eye on the COVID strain that's coming on through? Uh, I think it's not going to be quite like that because um, the flu strain has multiple viruses that are recombining in an unusual way, which other viruses do not. Um, so it's the recombination of attachment proteins and uh, other proteins in the flu that uh, the multiple strains are circulating at once and they then recombine, which is why we can lose uh, flu vax efficacy during a year. <laughs> this mRNA technology actually gives us ability to perhaps have two flu vaccines a year. Uh, depending on obviously where it is, you can't really make a new vaccine for a relatively small market and Australia is, on a vaccine scale, a small market. Uh, but certainly you could in the US, and there is a potential to, say, have a vaccine in January and a vaccine in, Ju in June, July. And that might increase our efficacy towards flu. I don't think there's any, any evidence that coronavirus uh, uh, can change like that. Um, so far, its changing has somewhat been interesting, uh, unexpected, but I don't think it'll be able to change to the same degree that the influenza virus can. <laughs> but it may be that because world herd immunity is not going to be happening this year, I think it would be very like unlikely to be happening next year, to be honest. There are a lot of people in a lot of places. There are a lot of good people trying to put a lot of effort in. But realistically, there are, you know, what is there, 7 billion people on Earth uh, and we have to vaccinate them all. So what that means is that the coronavirus might continue to circulate low grade. Uh, that does, depending on how it mutates, that does give the potential for it to mutate into something worse. But it also has the potential then to go back towards the common cold end of the spectrum. On that term of immu immunity, do we have any sense yet of the long-term immunity that these vaccines might provide or even uh, the infection itself? Well, actually, we've got quite a lot of data now. So thank goodness around the world, people are collecting this kind of information. We know that natural infection, if you are not immunocompromised, so if you're an average individual, and even in, even in the elderly who have survived COVID, is that they have evidence of persisting uh, immunity for at least six months. Um, so that gives some considerable time. And the same for, for vaccines as well, about six months. It appears the vaccines work well in those who uh, have been infected as well. So there are plenty of people who've already been in the US who have had COVID-19, who because they're in the high risk groups are being vaccinated. Um, we know that less than 1% of people with COVID-19 are able to be reinfected so far. Mm. So the virus has been around already for uh, over a year, uh, potentially a bit longer, but in decent quantities, I pandemic levels since March. Uh, so the, the reinfection rate is low. In those people, it appears to be a mild disease in the vast majority. 
and we do not know if the reinfected people are able to spread the virus. Lastly, there's just the, the question which was raised a, a fair bit about herd immunity. So you're saying that maybe don't even think it will be probably this year or next year. I mean, is this a realistic discussion to have about herd immunity? Is it something that sort of, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know a disease that we genuinely have herd immunity just because the percentages have uh, to be well, so high. We did have herd immunity to measles before anti-vaxxers got in. Oh, right. mm. Mm. Um Australia has herd immunity to cervical cancer. Right. Because we, our rate of cervical cancer now caused by the HPV virus is so low that we have almost induced, well, we probably have induced to those strains the vaccine covers herd immunity. Right. Okay. So, you know, that, that's an incredible thing that we've done because sensible people get vaccinated to something that can kill young women. Uh, and we've gone from a rate of... You know, I don't know what the rate was, to a rate close to zero. We, 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 we're the closest country on earth to eliminating vaccine uh, oh, strain-inducible cervical cancer. So then how far, as I say, how far do we need to get for, for coronavirus to fit into that category? I mean, you're talking about a 95%? Uh, well, no, I, I think you're kind of getting up to sort of 80 85%. Right, okay. Um, it, would be, it would be lovely to see Australia get to 95%. Um, I think... Uh, true vaccine-resistant people are not that common. Um, if you look at, let's say, a microcosm, uh, the NRL last year, uh, when they were told they had to be vaccinated to influenza to be able to play rugby league, um, several players expressed doubt and said they wouldn't. Uh, when it was pointed out their career was on the line, <laughs> uh, they got vaccinated. A couple didn't, and they left the country, which is fantastic from my point of view. Um, but... They're talking to my patients, lots of people express doubt, but that's because they haven't had communication. Yeah. Uh, and all it needs is reassurance and logical reassurance. You know, you admit that vaccines do cause side effects, no problem. But if you look at the other effects, what's the, what's the downside to not being vaccinated? And that's pretty obvious. Uh, we've got natural experiments in the UK and the United States. We can see what happens when you stuff things up. Uh, and really... Um, I think you're in Australia, I think the government has a good aim. Even in the UK, the vaccine rollout's going really impressively. They've vaccinated 10 million people already to their first dose. Um, whether they manage to do the second dose in time, somewhat moot at the moment. But I think Australia does have a good history of vaccine programs. We have a lot of resources, but it is going to be very resource intensive. Uh, but I think um, most importantly, all pretty much all business is on board. Mm. You know, I can't imagine a hospital or the business that I work for, our pathology companies, you know, you're going to need to be vaccinated. Uh, I, I see patients clinically. If by the end of the year you haven't gone and got your vaccination, you're not going to be my patient mm. because yeah. you're not going to be allowed to put my other patients at risk. Thank you so much, Dr. Damon Langeth, for joining us for this episode. And uh, I will be thinking of you when I go to get my vaccination and asking my GP if I can use your M&M analogy, <laughs> if I could have the red one, please. Yeah, don't <laughs> miss the green one now. <laughs> Thanks, Damon. Appreciate it. Bye. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au
And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.